Today is Take Your Kids to Work Day, so we're helping Dad out in the studio. This is the Need to Know podcast. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Today we're going to talk about supply chains in North America. This COVID-19 situation has certainly exposed a lot of issues in supply chains and how companies and governments are trying their best to make this work. Uh, And I think we're all trying to do our best, even down to the very individual level, uh, to make our lives work. And that requires supply chains. And so we have Duncan Wood and Chris Wilson from our Mexico Institute here to talk uh, from that side of the border. And uh, newly minted Canada Institute director Christopher Sands. Uh, he has come to us just recently in the last few months, and uh, we are so happy to have him uh, to carry on our work at the Canada Institute. We're very special at the Wilson Center to have a Mexico Institute and a Canada Institute that focus so you know, we have a, there are a lot of people that will focus on the region. There's a lot of folks that will focus on trade. Uh, but for them to go so deep into the regions and know the country so well and how they work with the United States is really a great thing to have at this time and have this expertise. So, Duncan, why don't you take it away for us and give us a little overview from what you're seeing. Thank you, Aaron, and good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for letting us into your homes. And if you're not in your home, if you're in an office, What's it like? I, I, I'm going to utter the words I didn't think I ever would. I, I kind of miss my office. Um, we're going to talk about supply chains, and I want to kick off with something that happened last Friday. There was a phone call between Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador and President Trump. And uh, it was announced afterwards that President Trump had guaranteed that Mexico would have access right. to up to 1,000 ventilators by the end of the month, um, with more to follow at a, at a later date. This is not a gift. This is not foreign aid. This is so that Mexico can actually export those ventilators down to Mexican hospitals where they're desperately needed. Up until now, however, most of the, uh, the traffic or the business has been in the other direction. It's been Mexican firms exporting ventilators to the United States. So why was this an issue? Well, um, there have been concerns in Mexico over the past few weeks after the incident with 3M, where the company complained of pressure from President Trump um, to stop personal uh, protective equipment from being exported to Canada and Latin America. In the end, the supply chain was not interrupted, uh, but uh, uh, Canadians and Mexicans were shocked that the United States might break medical equipment supply chains, leaving their partners without essential gear. And particularly in the case of Mexico, which has an underfunded healthcare system and where there was a minimal number of ventilators in the country prior to the, uh, to the pandemic, this caused a lot of fear amongst society. Today, we heard that acting uh, DHS Secretary Wolf has announced a 30-day extension on the border restrictions with Canada and Mexico. But of course, the essential border crossings will continue, and that will allow that essential trade and the North American supply chain to remain intact. And this is a critical issue, obviously, that North American supply chains remain intact at this time. Uh, as I said earlier on, Mexico is actually playing a crucial role, not just the ventilators, but it has a $17 billion medical device industry, which is increasing production of everything from different components to thermometers, hospital beds, catheters, etc. 
And so the U.S. healthcare system is really depending upon those imports from Mexico at this point in time. And I'd like to stress, it is not just the finished product that is crossing the border. It is components which allow American companies uh, and American factories to continue their essential work of producing the finished product. But I would like to make the point here, and just in this introduction, that supply chains will be just as critical in the recovery period. The North American economy, both firms and consumers, depend on the competitive advantages that stem from integrated production. The new USMCA will build on the solid foundations of the NAFTA and will help the three economies to add growth, and most importantly, employment as we come out of the pandemic. In 2019, more than 14 million people depended on North America as a region for their employment. In other words, on the markets that exist on the integrated production platform of North America for their employment. So as we look towards the future, as we look towards the economic recovery, North America and those supply chains that we've already mentioned are going to be critically important. We've already talked about um, Chris Sands, who will be, uh, I think, leading off the conversation next to, to, to give you a Canadian perspective. Let me say a little something about my colleague, Chris Wilson. Chris Wilson is a, uh, a unique figure in the sense that, uh, yes, he lives and works in Washington, but he has intimate knowledge of the, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. He spent a great deal of time down there and is really one of the country's leading experts on, on that area. Um, and he has become... A, uh, a, a, an excellent expert for us on the Mexican economy as well. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Absolutely, Duncan. Thank you for that. And of course, thank you to Chris for coming back. We've had you on before, uh, helping us out with the trade series we did back in January and all the cross-border situation we have with Mexico. So it's great to have you back. Take it away. I'm going to cover just a few sort of basic concepts and facts and then really focus in on the medical device and equipment supply chains with relation to Mexico. There's kind of a particular challenge there that I want to bring up as the main part of my remarks here at the beginning. And then I'd be happy to talk about broader issues in U.S.-Mexico trade and supply chains or anything else you guys want to during the, the Q&A. Um, the first thing, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this concept, is that I, just, I want to bring up this idea of just-in-time supply chains. And that's this movement that we've had over the years to where companies are carrying less and less inventory. They've reduced their warehouse space. They've reduced how much, you know, how many days worth of product or, or, or um, materials used to build product are stored on, on site uh, in order to cut costs, basically, right? So every, you know, they have to pay for that warehousing space. And so if you can cut the amount uh, of material that you're storing on site, then you can cut your costs. And to do that, I mean, so companies have moved to just, you know, a lot of times in the case of manufacturers, just a couple of days maybe uh, of product on site. But in the case of hospitals, we can actually say that they carry less and less inventory as well. And that's because in general, supply chains have become much more reliable over time. Supply chain managers are great at sort of managing this sometimes incredibly complicated task of, I mean, the, the course of producing an auto, for example, an automobile, thousands of components moving together around not just a country, but around the world that have to be there on time to keep production running. So there's this kind of very complicated dance that's going on all the time. And supply chain professionals are always asking themselves the question, what could go wrong with that supply chain? What do we do if a hurricane hits? What do we do if uh, you know, a, a big storm hits, an earthquake, any sort of disruption to the supply chain, just the supplier goes down for financial reasons, whatever it is. But, but sort of like in the 2008, 2009 recession in the United States, you know, 
there was a lot of contingency planning in terms of banks and capitalization, but they never really modeled a full-on crash of the entire real estate market. Well, supply chain professionals did a similar thing. They modeled all sorts of contingencies, but not necessarily a full-on stoppage of the global economy for an extended period of time. And so we've gone beyond the contingencies that they've planned for, and now we're in uncharted territory in terms of making sure that the products we need every day, and specifically products we need in the fight against COVID, show up at the hospitals or at our doorsteps uh, every day. I mean, this is from toilet paper to ventilators and personal protective equipment. There's so many impacts that are being dealt with on the fly uh, because of what's, what's happened. As Duncan mentioned, uh, there's broad supply chain integration across North America. We don't just trade products between the countries of North America, we build them together. Uh, and, and we really, you know, we can't at this point take that apart, you know, between one day and the next. So we depend on our neighbors to make sure that we have these, many of these essential products showing up where they need to be to save lives. Uh, today, half of US-Mexico trade is trading inputs. It's trade not in finished products that would show up at your doorstep or mine or at a hospital, but rather the parts and materials that would go into those products as that supply chain is moving across the continent and production is taking place. Um, in the current context, you know, we've had uh, some restrictions put at the border, not really related to commerce, but related to travel. We've seen many more restrictions put in place in terms of the closing of certain businesses across the continent. Those are taking place in Mexico, just like they are in the United States uh, and Canada. We've seen a decline in commerce of about 20%, and those are very initial figures. We'll, we'll learn more as time moves on and as figures evolve, uh, but certainly trade is down at the borders just because uh, supply chains are disrupted, because demand is down for certain products, because we're stuck at home and people can't go to the factory and build what they need to build in certain cases. Um, and as Duncan mentioned, there's just been an extension of the border travel restrictions. Uh, so, you know, what we have right now is at the borders, essential things can still cross the borders. And what's really good about the way that that was put in place is that there's an agreed upon definition, you know, bilaterally in the case of US and Mexico, and then bilaterally again, uh, in a mirror sense, really, in the case of the United States and Canada, of what that means, what essential is. So we've agreed on together what it is that will flow and what will not flow essentially at the borders. Uh, and that's really important because of these integrated supply chains. The, the challenge though that I wanna bring up is that other health and safety regulations, uh, other definitions of what's essential in terms of a business that's open or not open have not necessarily been coordinated in the same way. Uh, there's a lot of sub-national, both in the United States and then again in Mexico, uh, involvement in making those designations and enforcing, very importantly, enforcing those designations. And that's the area we've run into some challenges. So I'm going to turn for just a second to the medical device industry and, and close with a sort of specific description of what that challenge looks like in certain cases in Mexico and, and as a result across the continent. Um, about 30% of the medical devices used in the United States are imported from Mexico. Mexico is the top foreign supplier of medical equipment in the United States. Uh, the medical device industry, as I think Duncan mentioned, in Mexico is worth about $17 billion. Uh, it's comprised mostly of US and other foreign companies building for export to the United States. So it's mainly designed to feed us and our needs inside the United States. And that becomes a bit of an issue that I'm gonna jump into. Mexico is a top supplier of consumable 
uh, medical equipment and devices, so things like needles, syringes, catheters. Uh, some of those products are used in the fight against COVID, uh, but some of them are, are not. Uh, but there's a smaller number of manufacturers in Mexico that are making products like ventilators or ventilator components that are very directly related to, to the challenge that we're facing right now. I'm going to just go through a few sort of examples of what these companies are and what that looks like to give you a flavor of it. Um, Pilrum uh, is a, a company that makes ventilators. They previously didn't use Mexico to produce ventilators, but are trying to expand uh, their production of ventilators and therefore are beginning uh, production in their Tijuana factory of ventilators that will be exported to the United States. Uh, Bayer Medical, Fisher and & Paykel, and Gettinge are also based in Tijuana and are all either boosting production of auxiliary ventilator parts or other coronavirus-linked products such as PPE, masks, protective clothing. Uh, Hematronic, that's an Italian company uh, with a factory in Reynosa, Mexico, across from the border from Texas, uh, is making extension tubes for IVs so that nurses can deal with patients without getting as close to them as they normally had to. So that's a special product that's being designed and manufactured now you know, to deal with coronavirus in the medical context. Uh, Integer, a company in Plano, Texas, operates factors in Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez. They make batteries for ventilators. They're trying to boost production 300% of those products to meet the skyrocketing demand. MFI International is a company uh, based in El Paso, Texas, for uh, their production in Ciudad Juarez. They've shifted, they're normally a bedding and home furnishing company, but they've shifted to making hospital supplies, including things like body bags, actually, which is you know, kind of horrible to think about, uh, but necessary right now as a result of, of what's happening. So there's companies that have been in medical devices, but also companies that are converting their production to medical equipment, medical devices, and related products. Um, but so this, this issue, though, that I, that I was getting at is that there's a lot of production for export in Mexico, and that's, you know, but there's a huge demand for these products in Mexico. And so there's a bit of a backlash and, you know, a little bit of nationalism that's popped up there, just as there was some nationalism popped up in the U.S. around the 3M case that needs to be dealt with in a cooperative way to ensure that these supply chains continue to work. Um, and so, the, yeah, the focus on production for exports created some tension. Um, you know, you remember that AMLO just asked President Trump to, to help with those ventilators, to help send ventilators to Mexico. Similar request was put in to China. There are two reasons, at least two reasons, why this is the case that Mexico is a producer, but also is worried about being able to import these products. One is that medical equipment faces strong safety regulations, and those safety regulations are often specific to specific jurisdictions. So production for the U.S. market is not always the same as production for the Mexican market. And so there have to be sort of certain approvals and things like that put in place. That's to say that for companies producing things like ventilators in Mexico, it's not always easy for them to immediately redirect that to the Mexican market. Also though, much of what Mexico does is parts production. You know, as I said, half of US-Mexico trade is trade in parts. And so a lot of times, you know, there's huge parts production happening in Mexico, but final assembly may take place somewhere else. Or even in the case of many of those consumable medical products, you know, actually in, in Tijuana, a lot of those products are sent from Mexico to Costa Rica to be sterilized and then sold on to their final market, wherever that is. So, you know, these are complex supply chains that we need to have intact, right? The entire supply chain needs to stay intact for the product to get to the consumer that ultimately needs it. 
the most worrying example of this challenge that we're facing right now uh, came up last week when the governor of Baja, California, ordered the closing of Smith's Medical Factory in Tijuana. They're a Minnesota-owned uh, medical device manufacturer. They make ventilators to something that's vitally important right now in the fight against coronavirus. Uh, he said that they wouldn't be considered an essential business and wouldn't be able to stay open unless they diverted part of their production of ventilators, which were all destined for export, to the Mexican market. Uh, they at least initially sort of declined to do so or were unable to do so, and so they were ordered closed. Now, it only happened for a few days, um, and to fill in just a bit of the context, it happened after many factories had refused to shut down, maybe many of them which should have shut down based on the rules of Mexico of what's essential and what's non-essential. Uh, so he then wanted to have everyone shut down and then apply to reopen. So it was a, a bit of a complicated process, but clearly there was sort of a fragmented and ineffective decision-making process that was underway there. And it took a few days for that in this, you know, really the most pressing uh, of cases to be resolved and for production to start back up. Well, the, the reality is, is that that was the most high profile case and it was resolved. There are lots of other cases of companies facing similar types of challenges in Baja California, but not only there, in other parts of Mexico as well, that are dealing with, you know, local governments uh, in terms of their designation to be essential or non-essential to be open if they're a part of, you know, what, what is for us as a North American community, uh, truly essential and clearly essential. Uh, so I'd say that the key message here is that supply chains and our economies are totally integrated, uh, but emergency supply chain management is fragmented and at times also nationalistic. And that's the challenge that we have to overcome. You know, we've built up a system that's very efficient uh, for producing goods and, and really effective in getting those goods to where they're needed. But we now need to have in place, it's, it's, it's clear now that we need to have a much more coordinated approach to emergency supply chain management in order to, to not let that be disrupted in times of crisis. Thank you, Chris. And now over to the other Chris, our newly minted director of the Canada Institute, Chris Sands. I'll try to keep it uh, brief and, and also build on, on what Chris Wilson just shared with you. Much of that is the same for Canada. And I think as Duncan Wood laid out, you know, the overriding concept is to recognize that supply chains link us to production elsewhere. They've also helped to make us competitive vis-a-vis -vis countries like China. And I think this is something that's not often realized. It, China has a huge advantage in, in low-cost labor, and it's had an advantage in being able to ramp things up quickly. That's drawn a lot of American companies to participate in the Chinese economy. But North America is extremely competitive, and in part, it's competitive because of supply chains that allow for specialization, access to regional expertise or clusters in different parts of North America that have made this one of the most exciting and competitive places to do business. I think that's something that is a story that is a U.S. story because, of course, the U.S., is the heart of this region and this economy, but it's also a North American story. And it's our linkages to Canada and Mexico that in some ways will help us move forward beyond COVID. As we think forward in the North American economy, I think you're gonna see a number of businesses in your districts and districts that you know best looking for something new in supply chains. And that is greater supply chain 
data transparency and better governance. The risk of a supply chain going to China is not the distance. It's that some parts of your supply chain are dark and you're not going to know whether the inspections, whether the governance there, the regulation of say production of a raw input or a food product is being done consistent with the standards that we have here in North America. In the United States, we know what the Canadian standards are. We know what the Mexican standards are. If there's an enforcement gap, we know how to raise that and get it fixed. That's what makes North America qualitatively a better place to do business. And that has a big impact in an area like medical supply chain, where we're not only a highly regulated sector, but we're dealing with something where precision matters and you can't afford to have those knowledge gaps, those dark areas in your supply chain. Another area that I think you're gonna see increasingly in the supply chain world, which will be important to our businesses, is agility. Supply chains have tended to value, in order to achieve the just-in-time dynamic that Chris Wilson was talking about, they've needed to have a certain stability. That is to say, known customers, known suppliers all along, all along that supply chain, so that a company gets a predictable cost price point that helps them reach market competitiveness. As we move forward, what the coronavirus has taught us all is the importance of something just a little bit, a little bit beyond that stability, and that is agility. Much of the medical supply chain has operated without the dynamism of other areas of supply chain. And yes, Chris Wilson is right. Supply chain managers figure out how to get the job done every day across North America. But at times like this, we often find that parts of the supply chain are meeting just what the production will allow in order to keep costs low and avoid inventories. At times of surge, where you have a surge in demand, surge in need, then you need to find ways to get additional capacity online quickly. Most of our systems that provide supply chain agility were designed for events like hurricanes or earthquakes, where you'd have a regionally concentrated sudden need. What's interesting here is because it's nationwide, global in fact, we found that it's, it's a real challenge to find additional capacity uh, to surge your supply chain. So we don't have adequate agility. Now, that leads me to the question of the private sector role, which in Canada and across North America has really been amazing. Chris talked about some of the companies that have stepped up, many American companies that have stepped up also to try to meet the unique needs of this moment have used the capacity they have in Canada to contribute to that. Why? Because for them, it's an integrated manufacturing enterprise. If the Canadian firm or the Canadian plant has capacity, they've turned to Canadian plants to step up. Canada also plays an important role in particular inputs. This is the specialization I was talking about that's helped to make the North American economy so strong. A couple of the inputs are things that you might have expected. Canada's famous for pulp and paper. And so, of course, it's a wonderful uh, paper mill that produces the kind of pulp that can be used not only in respirator masks, but also in, in gowns uh, and hospital, hospital linens so that you have a disposable product that has a high degree of of resistance to, to infection. That company is working flat out. They've doubled their production in just the last few weeks in order to meet surge in demand, but their customers are all in the United States, relying on this one plant to produce the kind of grade of material that they need, and they're ramping up to be able to produce even more. But that gives you an indication of the supply chain. Another aspect of the supply chain where Canada is particularly strong is in metals. 
and raw materials. You don't think about it, but for example, titanium, which has a low risk of being in infected. Canada is a high producer of titanium. They are a leading producer of gold, which is used in quite a lot of medical equipment. Um, they are the number five producer in the world. They're the number three producer of platinum. And from platinum, uh, they also produce thorium, which are both used in radiological detection devices, including things like MRI devices. Canada is also a big producer of lithium, uh, they produce copper, they're number 12 producer of copper, aluminum, number two producer in the world of diamonds, which those of you who are looking at surgeries know that diamonds are very important for some of the optical surgery, surgical equipment. So Canada's producing not only those products in our supply chain that you don't think of as being primarily medical, they're producing additional capacity, they have additional capacity to expand production as we move forward and try to move away from sourcing critical strategic minerals and especially rare earths products from Chinese sources, which is something that the U.S. now has an executive order urging us to do. We've been moving some of the defense supply chain away. Increasingly, I think we're going to be moving some of the civilian, but equally important national security supply chain away. We all heard about the 3M case, which was raised by Duncan. And I think the 3M case was also indicative because while it raised the question of the use of the Defense Production Act of 1950 in the context of this crisis, it also led to a very important recognition from DHS and FEMA, which indicated that Canada and Mexico would be exceptions and there would be no Defense Production Act usage invocation against companies in Canada and Mexico. Why? That decision reflected the tight integration of supply chains, which DHS is in a great position to know. So we've seen policy evolving over time. And I'm not saying, and I wouldn't say, you never say governments won't make mistakes. But if you look at the way in which DHS and the U.S. administration have adapted to show the importance of Canada and Mexico, and you put that on top of your own congressional recognition of the importance of moving from NAFTA to the USMCA, I think you see a powerful reinforcement of the importance of North America for, for our future going forward. I'm going to uh, pause there because I think I've said a lot. Happy to answer your questions and uh, also to engage with uh, my colleagues who uh, really are a great team to have joined. Okay, a couple of questions that we've gotten in from uh, some congressional staffers. And one, I think, kind of connects to this last question, so we'll take it first. Uh, to what extent can the U.S. go it alone and be self-sufficient in manufacturing? And are there some sectors where that could be possible and they would be better candidates for that than others? In the short term, no, uh, is the answer. In the short term, we can't go it alone because we have these systems of trade in place in which we're either, you know, importing the produce and products that we need. So, you know, in the case of the, in the winter in the United States, over half of the fruits and vegetables that show up on your grocery store shelves came in from Mexico. Uh, you know, if, if we just turn off trade, uh, you won't be able to eat, right? I mean, so, so in the short term, no, is the answer. Your factories will stop working, uh, we won't have the personal protective equipment that we need. We won't have the medical devices that we need. We, we, we just can't do it. It would, be, uh, it would be just more than shooting ourselves in the foot uh, to do so. So the, the question then is really more of a longer term question. I mean, I think there, we're having some of this discussion in the short term about controlling exports. Uh, you know, the 3M case is an example of that. Of course, what that does is it risks other countries controlling their exports. And if they retaliate against us and we end up shutting down trade, 
then we're in a dire situation. We're in that situation where we can't get the things that we vitally need today. And so in the, in the short term, no, we can't go it alone, I think is just the, just the, just the facts, just the reality. Uh, the, the harder question to answer is in the long term, ought we you know, to try to incentivize a greater use of US-based supply chains? Or another way to answer, ask that question is, should we use more regional supply chains, counting on Mexico and Canada, but not China? Right. And those are much harder questions to answer. I mean, I think we have to just acknowledge that the basic reason that we have regional and global supply chains, production systems, is because they're more competitive. Right. They're, it's cheaper to get the products through those systems than it would be to just make them in the United States. That's why U.S. companies invest abroad is, is in order to bring down their prices and serve the global market at a better price point, you know, maximize economies of scale utilize lower labor costs, all that kind of stuff. So if we want to have more of it in the United States, then we're going to take an economic hit to get there. And so the, the, the question is, in what cases is it worth it to take that economic hit in order to have your supply chain be a little bit closer to you? Uh, in, in certain medical devices and equipment, maybe it is worth it to have a backup supply ready to be able to be produced in the United States in the case of calamity. Uh, but in the case of, you know, an automobile, I don't know, is, uh, is the member that lives in your district willing to pay an extra $1,000 for their car uh, in order to have it produced locally and not use uh, Mexican production components along with components coming in from Korea and other places? You know, that, that's a tough question, uh, but it certainly has an impact on jobs and things like that in the United States. Aaron, can I just add a twist on that? I mean, yes. I, I, in, in a way, I think that's... Um... It's a very good question. We obviously in the defense production supply chain, we're very choosy about who do we allow in and out because for national defense, that makes sense. We pay for it because not only do we have the best equipment in the world militarily, it's, it's expensive. And so as Congress will know, you know, that's a tough trade-off and you don't want to do that in every part of the economy. I want to highlight two things that, um, especially as we move from COVID to getting the economy going again, which will be really important um, where I don't think we want to rely on ourselves. One is personnel. I grew up in Detroit and the Detroit hospitals rely on nurses who come over from Windsor every morning to work in not only the VA hospital, but the hospitals in the, in the community. In a similar crisis, well, smaller scale, but that many people remember Hurricane Katrina. One of the challenges we had as a continent, as a continental community, was that as New Orleans wrestled with the impact of Hurricane Katrina, Canada stepped forward and said, you know, we could offer you utility workers who could help get the electricity going again and, uh, and some poles to kind of get the power lines going again. And Canada st and Mexico stepped forward and said, we'll send a you know, military hospital and, and a soup kitchen, like a kind of mess tent, so we can help feed people in the emergency. All of those generous offers of help ran into the problem of local regulation that said, well, if you don't have a food serving license, if your medical degree isn't locally recognized, we can't let you get involved in helping people. And it was a moment where I think Canadians and Mexicans trying to help were really shocked that we couldn't accept the help, but that's where public policy comes in. And as a result of the Security and Prosperity Partnership, which had been set up uh, under the George W. Bush administration and carried forward into the early Obama administration, administrations of both parties worked to try to come up with a way that medical personnel and other technical professionals could cross the border and work in a time of need. And the quality of Canadian engineers, 
uh, Canadian doctors and nurses, many of the Mexican, their Mexican counterparts is really quite good. So as we think about agility, I think personnel will be an important thing, not on a routine basis, but in an emergency, it's great to be able to rely on people who can cross the border. My last point is, is having to do with the return of the economy. There are a lot of aspects that matter both locally and nationally. One is as we work, our, we wake up our supply chains again, have we aligned our reopening of the economy all along the supply chain? These are decisions that are rightly being made locally by states, by localities, what to open, what's essential. And coordinating that so that businesses can do business is a huge project, but it gives an advantage to the big multinationals, the General Motors, the General Electrics, who have the clout to talk to governments in multiple places and try to get the policies aligned. For many people in Congress, the missing, the silent majority of our business is the small business sector. And the small business sector doesn't necessarily have the same voice and their supply chains are often invisible to federal policymakers. So making sure that the small business community gets back online is gonna be very important. And one area where they are concentrated is in the sectors that's affected by cross-border tourism and shopping. And there's a lot of questions about what will happen when we start getting back to normal. Will this essential restriction on the border still allow people to come, for example, and take a vacation in Florida or, or in California? Will it allow shoppers to cross the border to try to make up for a, a local supply chain glitch that means not enough toilet paper in Southern Ontario or, or wherever we need it? Those kind of restrictions are important too. And I think there's a big debate about how do we open up and take advantage of our consumers in Canada and Mexico who will help us get our economy going again. A couple more congressional questions here. Uh, one we have here is that uh, it was mentioned that there are inconsistent definitions of essential across certain industries outside medical supply chains. Can you speak more about any industries that may be specifically upset by this issue? They've received some feedback about plants that were closed in Mexico, which provide materials for essential services in the U.S. because they don't provide materials for that same service in Mexico. And I think one of our experts was talking about a situation like that uh, in Mexico uh, where a plant was was closed for that reason. Sure. I'll, I'll try to jump in and do that one. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly as was suggested, I mean, the medical device industry is the place where we've seen the, the most sort of dramatic examples and clear examples of this and, and where it's been specifically sort of stated to them, if you're not producing for uh, domestic consumption in addition to export, then you may be considered non-essential because you're not essential to the well-being of our local community, right? And that's something important that I just want to say to you all, that's something that we're hearing from subnational governments in Mexico, not from the federal government. So it's a matter of interpretation of guidance from the federal governments and how it's being implemented on the ground uh, in specific localities. And then, and then the negotiation that's taking place between those companies and government uh, is a complicated one and, and one that's not in all cases working. I, I'm sure there are other uh, companies that are in a similar but a little bit trickier situation that are providing inputs. Uh, I mean, you know, things like you know, you need packaging to send vital products, right? So where does essential fall out to? According to Mexico federal guidelines, packaging could be considered essential. Actually, I, I know that trade in, in packaging and paper products is continuing to flow across the border. Uh, so we're seeing that type of thing happen. But again, every local designation uh, in terms of interpretation is going to be a bit different. The auto industry is considered non-essential in Mexico. I mean, it, it's 
shut down basically in the United States as well right now. Uh, but a key question, and, and there's uh, definitely a, an amount of lobbying taking place around this in, in Mexico is the reopening, right? If in the United States, we're able to get to a point where we can reopen things like auto production, uh, but in Mexico, they're not there yet. You know, they've been hit by the virus a little bit later than us. We're not sure if that will, if they'll have the same curve as the United States or not. Uh, but if restrictions continue in Mexico, Mexico while they're lifted in the U.S., well, that doesn't help the industry all that much because they depend on all these parts and materials coming from across the border to keep the factories running. And so especially complicated big equipment machinery like autos, that matters a lot for. The National Association of Manufacturers in the United States just wrote a letter to the president of Mexico uh, really sort of, it was a broad message, but essentially arguing that manufacturing across the board it should be considered essential, or at least that's how I read the letter. I mean, they're saying that if we get into too many sort of, you know, this yes, but this no, we're going to miss too many things that end up being an essential part of the supply chain, even though we're not sure at the moment that they, they, they would be. They don't sound like they are, but it turns out that they facilitate you know, the parts maker, the parts maker facilitates the ventilator maker, and the ventilator saves our lives. Right. And so we ought to be very careful in making these designations of non-essential in manufacturing in general and, and maybe ought to just be looking instead to be finding ways to reopen factories in the safest way possible. That's it's you know, it, it's a debate that's a, taking place out there right now. And I, and I would just say, too, on top of that, Chris, you're exactly right. But um, for 37, 38 states, Canada is their number one export market, not only a supplier of intermediate goods, but ultimately the destination of final products. You want that economy to be counted essential for a lot of communities. That's what keeps them going in international trade, more so than China or anywhere else. So I think that the challenge with essential is essential on the first day when everybody's focused on trying to stop the spread of the coronavirus is, is one thing. As weeks go by, the essentialness has to start easing up. So because more becomes essential just to live and have a, have a decent quality of life. If you don't allow those rules to expand, you put the poor, and I, I'm sympathetic to the person in government, whether they're at the state or local or even federal level, who's in the awkward position of trying to pick winners. In effect, who's the winner who's going to be essential this week? And once you start having a, someone in government, not in business, trying to make those calls, you're going to make mistakes. Um, and, and I think that as much as we can let the economy come back to life naturally, that's important. And just focus the restrictions on those things that might actually spread the course of the disease or, or make matters worse. It'll take some time, but uh, I'm absolutely a believer that essential has to be widened. There's more of our life that's essential, including the pursuit of happiness, than we, uh, than we often count. We've had another question come in asking, when we recover from this, can you each give an example of regulatory harmonization or communication that would be helpful? What you're seeing out there that maybe uh, could be tweaked. I, of course, you know, USMCA and NAFTA, they were meant to kind of help move some of the regulations in a direction that there was some harmonization, but this may expose something else that may need to be fixed. So uh, maybe each of you can maybe give an example of that. Let me, let me just begin with something that's, that's painfully obvious, which is um, a regulatory harmonization in the, in the drug industry, uh, the legal drug industry. Um, in Mexico, the, uh, the regulator there is called COFEPRIS, and over the last 18 months, they have approved precisely one new medicine in Mexico. Um, as we come out of this crisis, you know, there are going to be various vaccines 
and treatments that are going to be uh, tried out and uh, we find that they're effective, but it's going to take months more to get them to market in Mexico because of how the regulator works. If we had a, I'm not suggesting a unified regulatory process, but a much more harmonized process where we could simplify it because it's been approved in one of the countries, then we know it has a fast track to approval in the other two. I think that would be something that would be of enormous benefit and, and it, obvious in the current situation. Let me jump in on something uh, maybe a bit different than that. I, I think that we have lost an opportunity, but we could still recover it. After 9-11, we set up these programs, and they've been mentioned earlier, on trusted travelers and trusted shippers. And in those cases, individuals not only share a lot of information, but in the case of a trusted shipper who's in, a, who's in the CTPAT, the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, or the FAST program, the companies provide a whole array of investments in their the security supply chain from background checks on drivers and loading dock workers to people throughout and equipment to make sure that their shipments aren't tampered with. One of the things I think we could do here is to utilize those programs asking for just a bit more information. For example, to make sure that you've tested everyone who's going to work in your supply chain so there's low risk of spreading the infection. And then instead of making a one case-by-case -case definition of what's essential, if the government said, if you're in these programs and you accept the additional burden to make sure that you're not spreading the, the virus, we'll deem you essential so that you don't have to worry. I think we'd address something that many people in the private sector have been complaining about now for years, which is they make the investment because of course they don't want to support terrorism, but they don't see the return on the investment in terms of privileged access across the border. Now, if we recognize their investment by saying, you're going to not have to worry about being essential, your activity can continue. I think we get greater pickup and participation in those programs. We'd also be using the programs to fight the new challenges that we face. And I think that's a an opportunity all three governments could coordinate in order to make this uh, the recovery work a bit more smoothly. I'll just finish with the 15 second answer here. I mean, we just need to work so that we reopen activity in our economies in a coordinated fashion. I mean, that's to me the, the very first step, right? Before we get to some of the longer term things is that we're building products together. We're sharing parts and materials across the border. If we don't reopen in a coordinated fashion, our companies won't open because they can only open fully when they receive those, those products and those inputs for production from across the borders. And so, you know, we've, we have this system right now, whatever you think about it, we've got it right now and we need to coordinate how we reopen our economies as a result of that. Well, thank you to all three of you, Chris, Chris, and Duncan, Chris Sands, welcome for the first time to the podcast. So glad to have you with us. Any of you out there that have other ideas for topics for other episodes, feel free to shoot us an email, needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. We're happy to hear from you, happy to provide something that maybe is useful to you in this time. So, until next time... Thanks for listening! Goodbye, everybody! <laughs> awesome, thank you guys. Want me to make your voice sound like Kylie Ren? Here. Today is Take Your Kids to Work Day. <laughs> This is the night about water. Goodbye, everybody. Ah! How about thanks for listening? Okay. Which yeah. is what we agreed on. Yeah. All right. Ready? I'll do. I'll do a challenge.